KMTT Ki Mitzion Tetzei Torah. This is Ezra Bek. And today is Monday, the Shur of Haraptavori. I'm going to steal a few minutes from Haraptavori. Don't worry, I'll pay him back some other time. To talk to you about a problem that I have. Uh, I'm responsible for the existence, the continued existence of KMTT. We've been broadcasting now for one year. We started a year ago on Hanukkah, and we've completed the year. Uh, and we've had some tremendous uh, responses. I've been, I've been, I've been amazed, uh, much more than I expected. People have unsolicited written in to tell us how how much, how wonderful, how much they appreciate uh, KMTT, how it's really changed their lives. They're traveling, they're commuting, they're exercising. They're bicycling, ironing, washing dishes, getting ready for Shabbos. And it's been extremely, extremely, extremely gratifying to hear from people. But, KMTT was started a year ago with a one-time grant. Very generous, philanthropic grant, which allowed us to get off the ground. That grant has been exhausted. And we don't have a business plan. KMTT is free. We don't charge, but it does uh, it does cost a lot of money to keep it going. And we finished we finished the grant, the funds which allowed us to get started. Therefore, I'm turning now to the population, to the listening audience, because there's no one else to turn to. I think that we should view KMTT as a a Shared endeavor. We're all we're all in this together. And therefore, this week, one week a year, we're going to put aside as a week, the drive week, called KMTT Appreciation Drive Week. One week to uh, attempt to have all of us together guarantee that KMTT can keep going for another year. I'm asking you to translate your appreciation, your heartfelt appreciation for what KMTT is, to translate it, and this is obviously limiting, but nonetheless to translate it into financial terms. How much is KMTT worth to you? I don't know how to evaluate it. I'm going to make a few suggestions now, just like off the top of my head. First of all, if you really can't afford it, if you, you know, if you don't have the ability to, to support KMTT as much as you think it's worth, then uh, pay some sort of a membership fee. I don't know, like uh, $18. $18 to $50. That's like a membership fee. So you're, you're part of this community. Two, if, if you're translating it into appreciation. So how, how do you appreciate it? So I, I'm thinking to myself, there are 20 shurim a month. 200 shurim, over 200 shurim a year. It's, 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 a, it's 120 hours I think, about a year, maybe a little bit more. So, is it worth a cup of coffee? Each year is a cup of coffee, a piece of cake. Suppose you were taking a public transportation to go to here this year, which I think you would probably do. How much would that cost? Multiply that by, by, uh, by 200 or by 120 hours. Do the math yourselves and see how much that's worth. If you view this not as appreciation, but as a really worthy tzedakah, 
next next level is membership, is appreciation. The next level is support. Um, support's a couple hundred dollars. We need the money. The money is being put directly to a good use. You know, four or five hundred dollars. That's support. Fourth level is philanthropy. People who God has blessed with financial success become a sponsor. Sponsor of KMTT. View it as something which you take on your own shoulders. Habatas, Atala, hundreds and hundreds of people will hear each year. Anything above a thousand dollars puts you on our on our wall of honor of the sponsors of KMTT. This is the week. We guarantee the budget this week. We know that we can forget about it for another year and continue to provide the daily the daily shiva. No more ado. I'm going to just give you the address. If you go on the website, there's a special uh, uh, marking there of all the different addresses for the United States, for Israel, and for the UK and for Canada. The website address is www.kimitzion.org. That's www.kimitzion.org. You'll find there the list of uh, of addresses where one can where one can uh, donate. You can also donate by credit card by calling into one of the offices or on uh, through PayPal. Secure credit card donation over the internet. Uh, the address for that is www.vbm-torah.org. It's vbm-torah.org slash donate htm. Go to the bottom of that page. There's a special button that says KMTT on it. Click on that button and you can immediately, securely, and on the spot, uh, donate to to this cause and help and help and help support us. If there are any questions, again you can write uh, write to the office office at etzion.orgil or kmtt at kimitzion.org uh, and we'll be and we'll be and we'll be in touch. Enough is enough. The shir of Harav Binyamin Tavori, the weekly mitzvah for Pashad Vayechi. This week we read Parashat Vayechi. HaKadosh Baruch Hu allowed Yaakov 17 years of tranquility in Mitzrayim. Vayechi Yaakov Baritz Mitzrayim Shvaz Reishanah. The Zohar explains that they were good years. Even though the 130 years that he spent before that were not such good years, these years were years of peace and quiet for Yaakov. But Yaakov brings Yosef and his Mashbiahim, he makes him take an oath to bury him in Eretz Israel, to take him out of Mitzrayim. And he uses that famous phrase, Viasita imadi chesed ve'emet. I ask you to do an act of chesed, which we generally translate as loving kindness, emes as absolute truth. And Rashi and Chumash quotes Chazal that the difference between chesed 
on one hand, just the word chesed of loving kindness and chesed ve'emes, a true act of loving kindness, is that a chesed that you do with a live person is considered a chesed. But a person who does chesed with someone after his death, that's called chesed shel emes. The general explanation, the simple explanation is that in a regular act of chesed, a person does something, but always there is an ulterior, ulterior motive. Somehow he wins favor with the person, the person will be good to him, whereas a person acts to someone else after his death, it's obviously an act of pure chesed neto, because there's no hope of any reward, of any gemul, of any payback. The shiur today will discuss the obligation of chesed toward live people, the concept of absolute chesed without the concept of emes, and we'll try to discuss the obligation of giving staka and other obligations one owes to his fellow man. Rav Shechter pointed out in his Sefer, Eretz HaTzvi, that the concept of chesed to normal people, to regular people, to people who are alive, refers to a shibud, and a real obligation that a person has. And he says it's based on a concept of mutual responsibility. Shibudim means I have obligations to you, and you have obligations to me. Shibudim will create a community which has mutual obligations. But there are no such thing as obligations to dead people. Obligations, by definition, are reciprocal. Brit is always considered a reciprocal obligation. I accept and you give. I give, you accept. We both have to share in the concept of a bris. To a mace, ain't she budim le mace. A mace is not obligated anymore. The custom, of course, at the funeral itself is that the Hever Kadisha says to the Niftar, we release you from any obligations that you incurred in this world. Our obligations are no longer based to the mace on the concept of chesed, but they are based on the concept of chesed shalemes. And this idea of chesed that we owe to regular people, to people alive, not after death, but while they are living, that's based on chesed, is the source of the of the shibudim, the source of mitzvahs. And Rav Shechter quoted the Tosfos in Bava Basra, and I'd like to elaborate upon that. The Gemara in Bava Basra, Beis, brings a story that a certain person was coerced into giving staka. And Tosfos points out, but there is a Gemara in Chulin that says. Mitzvah asay shematan schara betzida ain't based in shemata muzari malera. The gabet stoka ksiv ki pasoach ki fasoach tiftaches yad chalal uksiv ki biglala davar zayivarecha. We have a principle 
that we do not force, we do not coerce someone to fulfill a mitzvah when the Torah itself designated the reward for that mitzvah. Tzedakah is such an example. The Torah says you should give tzedakah ki biglal hadavar because HaKadosh Baruch will give you a bracha for this mitzvah. In fact, we know that we are even allowed to test HaKadosh Baruch The Torah says that we get the bracha, and the Navi says, You can test me. You're allowed to test HaKadosh Baruch with the mitzvah of Tzedakah. The Gemara says in Chagiga, if a person gives staka, a person gives staka with a stipulation that apparently his son is quite ill, and he says, I give staka because I want my son to be well. And if I ask for the bracha, so the Gemara says, This is an absolute tzaddik. One text might be, that means it could have been a Rashi Tevos, an abbreviation, Sadi Gimel, and it could be that we should have read it Sadik Gamur, or we might have read it Sudaka Gamura. Be that as it may, the text that we have says Hareza Sadik Gamur. The person is an absolute tzaddik. Even though he gave tzedakah with an ulterior motive, ubechanuni nabazos, we're allowed to test HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So Tosfus asks, if this is true, Bezdin does not coerce people to fulfill a mitzvah which has an immediate reward promised attached to it. So how could it be that the Gemara in Baba Basra there says that they force someone to give tzedakah? So one answer is that Amar Utam they really did not coerce him. They tried to talk him into it. A type of gentle persuasion rather than kfiya, which would mean absolute force. And perhaps this would be a general concept of kfiya mitzvahs, that a person, we would try to coerce a person to do mitzvahs. And Tosus has a few other answers. One of the famous answers is that by tzedakah, besides the mitzvah, the positive mitzvah of kasoach tiftach, there's a lav. Lo et Don't hold back. In fact, there might be two lavim. Lo ta'ametz And therefore, since there's a lav as well, the principle that we do not coerce people into doing mitzvahs which have a a positive mi- a reward attached to it refers to positive mitzvahs, to mitzvahs say. But since in Stoka there is also a negative, a lav, lota mitzvah so therefore the kfiya, the coercion that we talk about in Baba Basra, might refer to the coercion on the lav. A number of other answers are suggested by Rishonim. The Ktsaus is well known, who says in two places, I'll quote what he says in the Ktsaus Siman Reish Tzadi. The Ketel says, I think that by Tzedakah there's Shibut Nechassim. Umamona Meshubad Liteng Naniyim. A person is obligated not just to fulfill the mitzvah, but the Ketel felt there was a Shibut Nechassim by Tzedakah. It's not just that I'm obligated to give Tzedakah. There is an obligation which attains to my property. It pertains to the property that I own, that my property, as it were, 
is indebted to fulfill the mitzvah tzedakah. Obviously, not my entire property, but the amount of tzedakah that a person is required to give in a certain year, that amount would create an alin on his nechasim, on his property. So, then, if that would be true, we would have to enter a whole discussion. If a person could really be forced to fulfill mitzvahs to do with money because of Shibut Nechasim. Because his, his estate is indebted to fulfill this particular mitzvah. And this, of course, would apply to mitzvahs of tzedakah. Extension of the mitzvah of tzedakah would be, for example, that a person is obligated to support his children. It's an interesting point in Jewish law to what at, to what age is, is a parent absolutely obligated to support his children? The uh, Ramban, for example, in the beginning of Parshas Mishpatim, says there is no real biblical obligation to support children. The obligation is only of rabbinic nature, because somehow he feels it's self-understood that a father will support his wife, a husband will support his wife, a father will support his children, and therefore the Ramban feels there's no necessary in requirement of the Torah to coerce someone to do it when this will be done automatically. It's true that in certain cases this natural obligation was not met, so therefore Rabbanan decided that we have to institute a law of the rabbis that, people, that, a, that a, a father or a husband has to support their spouse, support their children. The Rambam, till a certain age, says there's an, a real obligation to support children, Beyond that, we say it's a concept of doing tzedakah. The Gemara, in fact, says, what does it refer to? The phrase, a person who does tzedakah all the time. He's constantly doing tzedakah. So the Gemara says, this refers to a person, it refers to a person who supports his children while they're young. To what age and exactly the obligations of parents to support the children are not going to be dealt with in this particular shiur. It's a long topic, and unfortunately it's become a topic that has been discussed in the courts in Israel because of recalcitrant parents, recalcitrant husbands, who really did not support their family in a normal fashion, which the Ramban said is basically what the Torah meant. Therefore, for the purpose of, of, of sustaining a family which is considered stokah, or for giving stokah in general, we could talk about the concept of shibut nechasim. In fact, we could extend this to other mitzvahs that apply to monetary obligations one has to his fellow man. For example, there's a halacha that a father is required to teach his child. The Rambam in Hilchos Talmud Torah in the very beginning says the obligation of teaching your children is an obligation on parents. It's also an obligation on grandparents. In general, it's an obligation on every Jew to teach anybody that he can. The mitzvah v'shinantam levanecha to teach your children, Rashi in Chumash says, Elu 
these are your students, your students and your children somehow mix into one identity that your children are your students, your students are your children. And the Rambam then goes on to say, based on the Gemara, so why does the Torah say, Vishinantam Levanecha, and not Vishinantam Letamidecha? Why does the Torah really say, Vishinantam Levanecha? If we say that you're obligated to teach your children, but a person is obligated to teach his grandchildren, a person is obligated to teach everyone. So why is there a, a specific statement, Vishinantam Levanecha, teach your children? So the Rambam quotes and says, the obligation to teach your children implies even a monetary obligation. Originally, of course, the idea was that parents taught their children privately. A father's obligation was to teach his child by himself. If a father could do that, fine. If not, the halacha is that he's obligated to pay for a teacher, for a malamed, to teach his son. What we would call today, schalimud, educational fees. A grandfather is required to teach his grandson also, the same way, or perhaps more so, but in a similar way, other people are required to teach Jewish children to the extent of their ability, but there, there is no monetary obligation. A grandparent does not have to spend his uh, own money to pay the educational fees of his grandchild. When uh, my children were growing up, my father always used to talk to my grandchildren and tell them that they should treat him as a father because b'nei banim areim kibanim, grandchildren are like children. So I used to say to my father, okay, fine, if b'nei banim areim kibanim, so my son needs shoes and my son needs tuition paid and my son needs this and my daughter needs that. And my father's answer was Adkan. I said, but the obligation of grandparents, the obligation of parents are not the same. Parents are obligated to spend money, the grandparents are not obligated to spend money. So we could discuss this question also. In the case of a father being obligated to spend, to pay for the education of his children, would there be a shibud nechassim? Would we say there is a, a real monetary obligation to, to prepare, to fulfill this mitzvah? The Vilna Gaon in Yaradeya, Simon Reish Memches, Sif Yotes, says that this is like Kfiya in every Chi of Mammon. The obligation to teach your children to pay the tuition for your children is like an obligation, and therefore we would coerce a, a, a father to do it. Interestingly enough, we would coerce him, and there is some, seems to be a Chi of Mammon, real Shibudim, he really owes something. To whom does he owe it? He either would owe it to the child or owe it to the teacher. But although that might be hard to discuss, the concept of Shibudim may apply here as well. But for Tzedakah, we say now, according to the Ketos, there's a Shibud Nechasim, and even if we would not say there's a Shibud Nechasim, that your land is indebted, your estate is indebted, but certainly we would assume that there's a Shibud Haguf. Certainly we would think that there is an obligation on every person, whether you have an estate or not, but there's a monetary obligation on a person to pay, to give tzedakah, and similarly to pay the educational responsibility for a child. The Rambam in Hilchos Matnos Aniyim, interestingly enough, Hilchos Matnos Aniyim, the laws of giving tzedakah, are found in the Rambam in Sefer Zrayim, in the book that deals with agriculture, because of course, the agricultural laws included in them, the mitzvahs of Leket, Shikha, Peya, the mitzvahs of giving charity from the agricultural proceeds of each person. 
And therefore, the Rambam in general put all the laws of Matnas Aniyim in the Sefer Zerayim. The Rambam says there in Perek Zayin, Halacha Yud, Mi no tzedaka, a person who doesn't want to give tzedaka. Oh, a person doesn't give enough as much as he should. So the Rambam says, Bezdin kalfimaso, Bezdin can coerce him. Bezdin is allowed to coerce a person to fulfill the mitzvah of staka. Umaki maso. And you would even inflict lashes on such a person until he agrees to give what they assessed that he should give. Then the Ram goes on and says, You we would go to his estate Bifanov while he's there while he is aware of what's happening. And we would take Masharai Lolitain. So we see the Rambam also says that we would coerce a person to give tzedakah. Not only do we coerce him, Yardim Lenechasim Lefanav. We would take away his property, Lefanav, in his presence. Now the question is obvious. If we say that there's Shibudim, there's a real obligation why would we only do this Bifanov? Why would we only do this in his presence? Why couldn't we do it when he's not there also? Here we would have to enter a discussion which is beyond the scope of this present shiur in terms of, in general, paying back debts, priyas balchov. Would we take away a person's money? Would we make a person pay his debt? Would we coerce him into paying his debt? If he's there, if he's not there, and so forth and so on. Ashir will deal specifically with the concept of tzedakah, and will say, Bifanav, according to the Rambam, Yardim l'nechasim l'fanav. You take away his estate in front of him. And you give what would be, you take from him what is appropriate. Why Bifanav? In the Rambam Frankel, very briefly, they quote a number of opinions about this. The Bach says an amazing statement. Pirush af b'fanav. Ve'en mamtinim she'itein ba'atzbo. The Bach thought that our question was so strong, why can't you do this shalom b'fanav? Why do you need his presence? If you really would assume there's a shibud, whether it's a shibud and the chasim, or perhaps only Shibud Aguf. But why would, well, if there's no Shibud Aguf, you might say that you don't go to his Nechassim at all. Let's assume there's Shibud Nechassim. So why do you go down to his land only Bifanav? What's Shalab Bifanav? The Bach says, you're right. You could do it Bifanav as well. Shalab Bifanav as well. You don't need his presence. Why do we say Bifanav? Because even Bifanav, even when he's there, perhaps we shouldn't do it when he's there, without coercing him to do it himself. We should try to at least coax him, cajole him, talk him into doing what he is really required to do in order for him to fulfill the mitzvah. And we'll go to on to discuss that in a few minutes. But according to the Bach, if necessary, you could do it Shabbat You could also take it away from Shabbat But even B'fanav, 
where we, he's there and we should try to allow him to do it himself, we still would take it away with Fanaf. The Bach, as I said, said that we would do it Shalom B'Fanav as well. The Shach said B'Fanav, at least we have to inform him. We shouldn't do it without informing him. Why is his knowledge important? Again, we'll get back to, to that later. But, of course, one explanation would be that, according to the Rambam, there is real no Shibud Nechassim. We can't go to his estate at all. But we can force him to do it. So if he's there, when while he's present, it's considered kfiyah on him. If he wouldn't be present, if he wouldn't be aware of it, then it would be kfiyah on his nechassim. It would be to take away his estate. And if you really hold there's no shibud nechassim, if you hold his, his land is not indebted, then you can only force him, but not force his nechassim, not force his estate. And therefore, only when he's there could one person do it. The other possibility is that the question of Choshen Mishpat here might might be involved. It might be a legal scenario where we could question, are we really allowed to take away money from someone else? If we can force him to give it to us, then maybe you say, like the Gemara in Bava Basra, Daf Mem Zayin Mem Ches has a whole topic. If I force someone to do it, to do a certain action, what is the halachic result of that action? We all know the famous case of Tolim, of Kofim Moswachi Yomar Rotsani. We would force a person to do something, but we would force him at the end to say he wants. And of course, it's well known, how could you say you force a person to say that he wants to do it? At the end, is it considered that he wants? And the Rambam, it's the famous Rambam in Hilchus Gerush in Perek Beis, the Rambam says that really a person does want to do things, so it's only there are certain problems that that will hold back a person from doing what's really right and proper. And therefore, when we remove those exterior pressures, we we reveal what the person's true intent is. So the kfiyah only removes the outer evil inclinations of whatever sort, and therefore when the person says, that he wants to do it, that really reveals his true intentions. If that would be true, so we could suggest here that, that there's a Choshemishpah problem. Kfiya, to coerce a person to give tzedakah, might really be a problem of a person giving away the money, it's not mine to take away, I'm not allowed to take away the money, perhaps there's no sheep with Nechassim. But when he's there, I force him, force him to such an extent that at the end he agrees. Perhaps that's what the Shach meant, we have to tell him. He could be that he's not there, but we have to tell him that you should be aware, because otherwise, if he would never say that he agrees, perhaps it's really a halachic issue of how can we take away his money. The last question I'd like to raise in this particular case is, does the person really fulfill the mitzvah when the the giving of the tzedakah is actually done by coercion? We say, and we say at the end, a person does want to do it. And that means he fulfilled the mitzvah? And what would happen if he did not say, at the end, he did not say, or well, I don't even know really, really, really what he means. So does he fulfill the mitzvah at all? Perhaps that would be the difference. 
in a case where Shalobafanov he's not there, so he doesn't fulfill the mitzvah. To take away his money when he doesn't fulfill the mitzvah might not be an example of Kavimah mitzvahs. Again, if there is Shibud Nechasim, if his land is indebted, then perhaps you could do that even Shalabafanah. But if Kfiyal Tzedakah, for Kfiyal mitzvahs, to force a person to fulfill a mitzvah, maybe that Kfiyah would only be if a person is present, is aware, according to the Shach, he knows about it, and then he fulfills the mitzvah. The awareness and agreement to give tzedakah might be based on a specific Gemara and a very famous din. The Gemara in Bava Basra says Daf Tesamodalif Amar Rebelezer Bezman Shebez HaMikdash Kayam Adam Shokel Shiklo Miskaper in the time of the Beis Hamikdash, a person used to pay his his machzis hashekel, the amount that he gave every year, and that brought kapara. The Torah calls machzis hashekel lechaper nafshosechem as a type of kapara atonement. Now the achshav she'ain Beis Hamikdash kayam. Now the Beis Hamikdash, to our sorrow, is not in existence. If a person does stoka, fine. And if not, our, the non-Jews will come and take away our money forcefully. And then the Gemara adds the phrase which is crucial to us. Nevertheless, it's considered stoka. Your oppressor, your oppressions, the people who oppress you, is still considered stoka. Now, the assumption would be that the money went for a good cause. But you, they, it was taken away from you, but not of your own volition. Nevertheless, even in the case where the non-Jew took it away from you, it's counted as staka. Somehow you see from here that when a person loses the money, and it goes, we hope, to a good cause, then al-pidin this might be considered stalker. Therefore, the kfiyah that we're talking about, that a person, you take away his money, might really be considered that he does fulfill the mitzvah. That's why I said there might be a difference between b'fanav, that he's aware of it, perhaps in front of him, there is an awareness, then you say he fulfills the mitzvah. Perhaps if he's not aware of it at all, in that case, maybe... He would not fulfill the mitzvah. The kfiyah would only be done for him to fulfill the mitzvah. And maybe the distinction between b'fanav and shalab means you do not fulfill the mitzvah, shalab In this context, it's interesting to point out the famous case of shikha. When I was a little boy, people used to ask, how can you fulfill a mitzvah being totally unaware of the mitzvah? Is it possible? for a person to fulfill a mitzvah and he's totally unaware. And the answer that I was told as a child was the mitzvah of shikha. A person forgets, and what is the exact law of forgetting? A person, while he's harvesting his field, forgot and left a certain amount of, of wheat in the field, of produce in the field. The Torah says that you should not return to get it, to collect it, to reap it, to bring it home, but leave it for charity. And the, and the Torah says, 
you'll get a bracha for this. So when I was a child, they told me, see, you fulfill the mitzvah without knowing about it. But in truth, the mitzvah of shikha in the Torah was not a mitzvah that was caused totally by your unawareness. The real mitzvah is not to forget. Obviously, a person forgot. The mitzvah is a love. Lo soshuv lekachto. Don't go back to get it. And then, if you don't go back to get it, you're aware of it. You become cognizant of the fact that you've left over in the field. Nevertheless, the Torah says, Luman yivarecha Hashem lekecha. Rashi and Chumash points out, a person who did this mitzvah and Rashi extends it to the case really that I mentioned as a child I was told Rashi says from here we can infer if a person lost money and a poor person found it, he gets a bracha for it. It's as if considered staka. So, according to the Rashi, it really does seem to be a mitzvah that you were not unaware of, and you fulfill the mitzvah even being unaware. So that's why when there's a shibud of mitzvahs, of tzaka, it might be that a person fulfills the mitzvah, the chiyuv, and we could do it, we could do it even without his consent, but... There might be a distinction between Bifanav and Shalom Bifanav, and there's obviously a lot more to discuss about this issue. This week, of course, we are dedicating the week to appreciation of the KMTT, and certainly the people that appreciate it, enjoy the Shirin, should realize, I don't know if we would say if there's a sheep in the Chassim, but a sign of appreciation would be to help support the KMTT. Thank you very much.